This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We start with the strike vote by BC's unionized government workers. They vote 95% in favor of strike action to back contract demands. I've got Union President Stephanie Smith standing by. First, have a listen to this social media post from the union here. You'll hear the voice of Donna here. She is a youth mental health worker, and here she is making the case for a significant pay raise. Have a listen. A lot of clinicians are going to, especially the young ones that are just coming on, they're seeing opportunities with better pay, better benefits in other positions. Um, so we're finding it challenging not only to find experienced people, but to find people at all. Um, with the cost of living in BC, that's something that people talk about a lot. And um, it just doesn't seem that the government has essentially kept up with the cost of living in terms of increasing the pay with that so i'm really hoping that that's something that's taken into consideration okay the union seeking a significant pay raise here in the face of record high inflation let's talk about it now with my guest stephanie smith president of the bc government workers union i'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show stephanie thank you for coming on this morning oh thank you so very much for having me mike okay so close to 95 percent is the strike mandate the strike vote what does that number mean to you as the president of the union oh we couldn't be more thrilled with the response i mean the engagement of our members you know all the work that went into this mike i mean you can imagine this is the largest vote of its kind we've ever had in the history of our union 33,000 working people in every single community in this province um and absolutely the strongest possible message we could be giving to our employer for sure. Yeah, 95%. That's certainly a very strong mandate there, especially for a large union, uh, the members of which uh, probably most of them have, have never experienced what it's like to go on strike, right? So it's, for a lot of people, it's kind of a scary, scary proposition. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the last time the public service direct government workers were on strike was 10 years ago. And so, um, you know, there's, there's people who, in fact, we know from our own internal surveying, we have a large percentage of members who've never been through a round of bargaining before, um, even within three years. So, um, yes, you know, I think the anxiety is uh, around cost of living. People asking yeah. themselves the question, can I afford to go on strike, but recognizing they can't afford not to get a collective agreement that's going to address that issue in the long term. So I think that's why they voted so strongly. Okay, let's talk about the negotiations. Like, where are you guys at right now at the bargaining table? Well, interestingly enough, um, even before we had announced our strike vote results, uh, the public service agency did reach out to us and they've asked us to come back to the table. So we will be resuming negotiations uh, this coming Monday. Okay, well, that's encouraging to hear. It, it sounded like in some of our earlier discussions, though, that the two sides were still far apart, though, correct? Oh, absolutely. Um, oh. The, the wage offer from the employer didn't even come halfway to what we were asking for. Um, and as you rightly pointed out yesterday, 
7.7% rate of inflation, highest in a lifetime. Um, you know, so uh, it, it we're very interested to see what uh, the employers coming to the table with on Monday. We'll know pretty quickly if it is even uh, in the ballpark of what we could put in front of our members for them to consider. Um, and we'll see where it goes from there. Okay, the last government offer that I saw here in this in these negotiations was a one point five percent increase in year one and a two point a two percent increase in year two. Have they come up from that, or is that still the government position here? Well, that was the initial offer. Uh, they then revised that. We we had a little cooling off period. They revised that to one point seven five in the first year, plus a flat rate, and then a two percent in the second and a two percent in the third. Uh, there was a signing bonus that, uh, quite frankly, I, I we could not put in front of our members, um, and so at that point, that's when we hit impasse. So uh, we have no idea what they're coming to the table with on Monday. Um, we hope that they. They have recognized just how strong this membership is in its determination to get a fair collective agreement, and uh, we'll see what what happens when we meet. Speaking to Stephanie Smith, president of the BCGEU Government Employees Union, how much was that signing bonus that they offered? Um, You know, it's been... (laughs) quite remember i want to say it was five hundred dollars a thousand dollars maybe but we we sort of said you know at this point it, it probably wouldn't even fill a tank of gas for a month so uh it wasn't anything that we seriously considered how much of a raise is the union looking for well, our proposal when we first sat and exchanged monetary proposals was 5% or a cost of living adjustment, whichever was greater. Um, you know, the last wage increase our members have had in the public sector was 2% and rates of inflation haven't been 2% since April of last year. So, um, you know, this is something that, that really has to be seriously considered by um, by the employer. As, as Donna said in her clip, if we're going to, you know, retain the incredible workers we have working for all of us who live here in British Columbia, um, and if we're going to attract new people in, we have to have competitive wages, and that has to recognize how expensive it is to live right now. Okay, so a 5% raise or a cost of living increase, whichever is greater. So I guess a cost of living increase would what would match the inflation rate, right? So so under that, it would be like a 7.7% raise? Well, that... there are lots of ways of calculating cost of living adjustments. And, um, you know, whether it's a rolling average, I mean, that's, that's up to, uh, you know, those kinds of discussions. Obviously, you know, it has to be something that our members will agree to. And because this collective agreement belongs to them, they're the ones who will be voting to accept or turn it down. And it, it has to at least begin to address inflation rates. And, and, you know, now we've got interest rates going up, so the cost of debt is more. Look, Mike, members of the Legislative Assembly, their wage increases are tied to inflation. Minimum wage, tied to inflation, as it should be. Rent increases, tied to inflation. We're simply asking the same for our members. What would you say to the people listening who don't have a government job, who don't have an indexed pension, uh, who can only dream of like a seven or eight percent pay hike. And these are the people who would have to pay the bill as taxpayers of British Columbia. What do you say to them when, when they're listening to you right now saying, okay, we're looking for like an eight percent pay hike here? 
Well, I didn't say we were looking for an eight. Well, yes, well, no, yeah, yes, well, point. no. It's seven point seven percent interest. It's seven point seven percent is the inflation Today, yeah. is the inflation rate. So you guys are looking to match at least match the inflation rate, right? We're asking for a cost of living adjustment and we're asking yeah. for inflation protection. So what I would say is that we have costed what we had proposed at the table. We know government can afford it without raising taxes. And I would say that, in fact, within the private sector, you will see similar rates of increases because private sector, like public sector, there is, you want to retain and you want to attract the best workers. We've seen private sector collective agreements that do, in fact, include rates of inflation and inflation protections. So we're not asking for anything differently. What, okay, when you say you've costed it out and the government can afford it without raising taxes, what would be the cost of the settlement? Well, I mean, when we're looking at our 33,000 members, um, but we are talking, of course, about the broader public sector. There's about 400,000 of those. I personally haven't done the costing. My team at the union has. And what we do know is that within the uh, current provincial budget, it is affordable. What are the chances of a strike action here? Like you've got a 95% strike vote, but that doesn't automatically mean there will be a strike, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, like I said, we're back at the table on Monday, so a lot is going to hinge on Monday. Um, we are still in essential services negotiations. There are essential service levels that need to be met. That is a ministry by ministry, job by job task. It's a, another huge undertaking that we're doing. And of course, to take any job action, we would need to issue 72-hour strike notice. So there would definitely be a heads up. It doesn't mean that, you know, if things uh, don't go well on Monday, that on Tuesday everything shuts down. That's not what would happen. Um, We want to be very strategic. We want to be thoughtful. And um, I've said this before, job action can take different forms. It could be an overtime ban. It could be what we call work to rule, where people do exactly what's in their job description. Last question for you. I'm going to be, we'll be speaking about vaccine mandates later on the show. The, the liberal leader is calling for all vaccine mandates to be lifted in the public sector in BC. Do you agree with that? Do you think unvaccinated workers should be allowed back on the job? Well, we reached out to the public service agency after the federal government announced uh, that they were, um, you know, no longer going to be having vaccine mandates. And uh, there is no intent at this point. It is regulation to work in the public service. So, um, you know, we continue to represent our members through the grievance process and we'll support them as much as we can through this. But do you think the mandate should be lifted now? Um, you know, Mike, I'm, I'm not going to give my personal opinion. I don't speak on behalf of myself. I speak on behalf of our membership and the vast, vast, vast majority of our members are vaccinated. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about the John Horgan's museum flip-flop now, the billion-dollar bungle, and the premier cuts his losses on this one yesterday, postponed that museum project. He said it was the wrong project at the wrong time. I think that's an understatement. We got Kevin Falcon, the B.C. Liberal leader. Hopefully we're going to get him here. We expect to have him on the line here in just uh, momentarily. But first, let's have a listen to what John Horgan had to say yesterday as he announced he was putting the brakes on this uh, billion-dollar museum. Have a listen. 
It's my responsibility to say to you today that I made the wrong call. I made a call at a time when British Columbians were talking and thinking about other concerns. Primary care for their families, education, the cost of living. It may well be that this plan is the one that the public says, yes, that's the best way forward. But we now have an opportunity when the, a heightened awareness of, first of all, the importance of the museum. Okay, he didn't rule bringing it back there. Did you hear that? He said he didn't rule this project coming back to life here, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. He said the postponement right now is indefinite, and I don't think, I think the NDP just want to want this thing dead and buried now for uh, at least beyond the next election. Let's discuss now with my guest, BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Kevin Falcon, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Okay, what do you think about the Premier's announcement yesterday in the museum? Well, it started out really well when he was sort of in the message box they wrote for him, which is to say, look, I made the bad decision and and uh, it was wrong. And I frankly appreciated him doing that. I said to the premier during the premier's estimates that it's never the wrong time to do the right thing. But unfortunately, as you pointed out, when it got to question and answer, suddenly the story started changing a little bit. He said, well, I'm not saying this one could be the very one that comes back. And then he started ruling things out like renovating the existing building and i'm very concerned about that because already i see uh something happening that i've seen many times before where they've got a decision made in their head and then they go out and consult after the fact so um you know we'll have to keep a close eye on that but i, I i'm glad to see that they've put a pause on this craziness of shutting it down on how, september 6 etc how much money has already gone down the drain on this thing i mean they did have a, a so-called business plan that they released at one point so obviously there was some work done on it so there must be some taxpayers money has already been wasted on this oh a huge amount plus let's not forget we've got uh, we're left with as as les lane correctly put it a, a dead museum i mean they've they've taken down the old town they've packed up much yeah. of the museum they're now only charging five bucks because you're basically going in to look at an empty building. Um, so that's not great. But don't forget, they're still moving forward with this very bizarre piece that I've always uh, wondered about. It didn't get as much attention because people were focused on the $789 million building replacement. But they're, they're spending almost a quarter of a billion dollars to build a warehouse facility in Colwood to move the existing artifacts out of the basement to. And I've never understood how it's possible to spend 225 million dollars for a storage building like it just it, it just blows me away i mean we can build two towers of residential uh you know high rises uh you know for for less than that so well I, well i guess the argument they're making is that the existing archives in the museum building are below sea level and could collapse in an earthquake could be flooded potentially and so they have to move all those precious documents out of there and into a safe facility. So you're but not opposed we, to that, right? No, no. But as, as yeah. we found out when I started questioning him on that, um, that facility won't be ready until at least 2025 because it's already a year behind schedule and almost uh, 30% over budget. It went from 177 to 225 million. But, but really the question, and, and so they were going to have to rent at, a, at 11 and a quarter million dollars rent space to move the, artifacts into a rental building until they complete this other building which made no sense at all either but look i think the question is why are they still moving ahead with that piece because i think yeah. that rather than spending a quarter of a billion dollars in colwood to store all these artifacts 
Um, I think that as part of this consultation, they should stop that project, go talk to First Nations. I think there's a great opportunity to open up multiple facilities throughout the province where you could work with First Nations to create these regional tourism opportunities, repatriate a lot of the artifacts that, that First Nations you know, you know, would like to see repatriated, and create a win right across the province. Uh, or at least that should be considered. Yeah. Do you think they should come clean now on exactly how much has been spent on this project to date? Like I mentioned that business plan earlier that was released to the public, but a lot of it was censored and redacted when it was released. I mean, now that the project has been effectively mothballed for years to come, uh, there, there doesn't appear to be any compelling reason to keep all that secret. Do you think they should release that full unredacted business plan they developed for this? 100%. They uh, should have released that from the get-go. I, I always said it was a, it was ridiculous that they redacted a third of the pages on that 100-page business case. They should release all of that information. That would be a, a really fresh approach and demonstrate that they are going to be going through a consultation process, making sure that the public has full information. So yes, they should do that. Will they do that? I'm, I'm highly doubtful. Let me ask you about another topic of of concern this week, and that are the continuing road blockades and bridge blockades that we've seen by environmental protesters. We saw it again this week on the busy Lionsgate Bridge with a blockade there that snarled traffic for a couple of hours this week. Uh, we've seen on the, on Vancouver Island more blockades, Highway 1 blockades. Let me play a clip here for you from Sergeant Steve Addison speaking to reporters yesterday about arrests at some of these environmental blockades this week. Have a listen. I'll get your thoughts. We're not going to allow uh, people to uh, illegally blockade vital pieces of infrastructure, create public safety risks. Uh, and today we were able to intervene quickly, make a number of arrests, seize a number of vehicles, and prevent um, a prolonged blockade. Okay, what a waste of police resources responding to this nonsense. But your thoughts, like, do you think this is being effectively uh, handled? Well, first of all, I think the police do a great job, but frankly, I think it'd be a lot more helpful if we had a premier and a government that made it very clear that this is totally unacceptable situations. And the problem is they've played footsie with with environmentalists like this for too long. I, I recall that we had a minister of the NDP government going up to an illegal blockade in Houston, B.C. and handing out lunches to the protesters. We had Nathan Collin writing letters to the RCMP saying how terrible it is that they're being a bit rough with these people when they arrest them. My goodness. I mean, when you're blocking that traffic, it's not just the inconvenience of people being late for work. It's people that are trying to get to critical medical uh, appointments. It's, it's emergency vehicles like ambulances that can't get to where they need to go. This is just totally appalling. I've been very clear. I'm going to bring in changes to the Motor Vehicle Act to make it an offense so that those people can immediately be sentenced to, for example, 50 hours of community cleanup where they can spend time picking up garbage in in the downtown east side and cleaning up graffiti in Chinatown, for example. Um, Because I just think that they get emboldened. They're paid protesters. This is uh, nothing but a a way that they try to raise... some, some get some generate some uh, free media so that they can fundraise yeah. off it, and I think it's totally unacceptable when it puts the public at risk like that. Speaking to BC Liberal leader Kevin Kevin Falcon, let me ask you about your comments and position here now on vaccine mandates in the province of British Columbia. So you want all the vaccine mandates to be lifted, including in the healthcare sector in BC? Is that correct? Like allow unvaccinated yeah. workers to go back to work? Your thoughts? Yes, but I said with the provision that there be robust safety protocols put in place to ensure 
that when you bring back the health care workers, you do it in a way that is safe. Look, um, the reason I said this is the federal government has already made the decision to uh, release their uh, employees and bring back unvaccinated workers back into the civil service. Uh, we've got a situation right now where BC Ferries is uh, thankfully able to do so because they're federally regulated. So they're bringing back 150 employees that are going to help deal with some of the delays and slowdowns. You've got the RCMP, again, federally regulated, bringing back unvaccinated workers. And so, you know, BC is, is standing out as one of the few jurisdictions that hasn't moved on any of this. And I just find it really appalling, frankly, that we've got workers, for example, uh, contract workers that fight forest fires that we may be facing in, in the coming weeks that are unable to go back to work. Uh, we've got conservation officers that work outside, for goodness sakes, that have been fired and terminated, even 20-year uh, civil servants that have been there for a long time. Um, I, I spoke to a nurse that uh, ran the emergency department at Langley Hospital uh, that was terminated. And, you know, we just can't afford to be losing this kind of highly skilled talent at a time we really need it. And so if okay. you think about it lot logically, Michael, you yeah. could be sitting on a bus next to an unvaccinated nurse. You could be sitting on an airplane next to an unvaccinated nurse. But apparently she can't sit by your bedside and look after you with an N95 mask on. Okay, well, I guess, you know, firefighters is one thing. But what about long-term care homes? Do you, do you believe that the vaccine mandate should be lifted for employees and workers in long-term care? No, I said that, that uh, I said when it came to healthcare workers that that only with robust safety protocols in place, and that's where uh, you would have to let the healthcare professionals say, is there uh, an increased risk here? And if there is, maybe they can't work directly with patients. Maybe they have to do something else, uh, or maybe mm -hmm. they can do so, but only with an N95 mask or what have you. So you've got to you've got to be smart about it. But what we can't afford is to have highly skilled workers that we need in the healthcare system sidelined and unemployed at a time when we desperately need them because as the premier said we have a system that is crumbling and teetering okay. all right thanks for coming on today to discuss it i appreciate it a lot this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the future of open net fish farming in British Columbia now. This is a battle that has raged for years in our province Critics of open net fish farms in BC coastal waters say the farms are a threat to wild salmon stocks. The industry has defended their operations and disputed many of those claims. Lots happening on this file now. Yesterday, the federal fisheries minister, Joyce Murray from British Columbia, announced that dozens of fish farms that operating outside of the Discovery Islands region will have their licenses renewed for another two years. But Ottawa embarking now on a transition plan away from open net fish farming in British Columbia. Have a listen to one of the environmental leaders on this this issue, this is Christiane Williams, Williamson from the Georgia Strait Alliance. Have a listen here. 
we are still going to hold the government to account for their commitment to get the open net cage fish farms out of BC waters by 2025. We hope Minister Murray will continue to uphold that promise because BC's salmon are in trouble. They're in crisis and we need to give them all the chances possible to um, survive. Okay, we expect to have the federal minister here, Joyce Murray, on in this half hour. First, let's check in with Ruth Salmon now, Interim Executive Director, BC Salmon Farmers Association. And I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Ruth, thank you for coming on today. Absolutely. Hi, Mike. Hi, thanks for doing this. Can you give me your reaction to this announcement by the, the fisheries minister yesterday? Was this something that, you got, that your, your association was anticipating was coming? Did you know this was happening? Well, we knew that there was an announcement coming before June 30th, so so that was really all we knew. Um, but we feel that the renewal of licenses is a positive first step. I mean, it, it confirms that the voices of industry and First Nations in whose territories we operate have been heard, and, and that's really important. Uh, the announcement also allows us to work on a process with all levels of government, including First Nations, uh, so that we can secure uh, a pathway forward uh, to um, a future for Indigenous and non-Indigenous coastal communities. So a process in our mind is a good thing. Right. Okay. So these licenses would be renewed for another two years, and this is for salmon farm operations that are outside of the Discovery Islands area. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Could you explain the significance of that, like this Discovery Islands area, and, and what is the significance of that particular region? Right. Uh, well, as you know, back in 2020, uh, Minister Jordan at the time made that decision to close the farms in the Discovery Island. Um, yeah. And, you know, obviously that had a, uh, a severe repercussions on the industry in terms of production and jobs and uh, euthanizing fish. I mean, it, it, it was a, a very devastating uh, decision. Um, that decision um, has been, you know, went to, to court that the three Atlantic salmon farming companies um, took that decision to court, came back that uh, it was felt that the federal government did not um, uh, did not show any administrative fairness to the process. And I think that was heard because uh, Minister Murray's decision to to have a process for that area and for the stakeholders and uh, First Nations in the in the Discovery Island area is a good thing. That's what we were hoping for that 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 kind of a thoughtful process would take place. So now that's uh, I understand from reading the press release, and and I don't know much more than you do on that uh, because it just happened yesterday. But it looks like that process is going to run. Uh, until the end of December, and then the minister uh, will make a decision in January uh, as to the reissuance of the licenses or not, depending on that mm. consultation process. Okay, okay. It's a complex situation for sure, and, and I know for people who work in this industry, it, it's got to be a lot of uncertainty here. So these licenses, though, for the region for farms operating outside of that Discovery Islands area, those are renewed for another two years. Correct. Right. And and then what happens after that, though? Because it sounds like the, the minister was indicating yesterday that there's a plan to transition away from these open net farms. Right. So are they all going to be shut down eventually? Is that is that the expectation? Well, I, I don't think that the 
that's the expectation given what um, what we read in the press release that that there there I think there's a hope for a future in salmon farming in British Columbia and that's certainly our view and the First Nations that that really should be the ones determining what happens in their territory that's how they view it as well so that's how we're you know we're viewing it as a as a positive process to look at uh, at a plan forward. The, the definition of transition hasn't actually been defined. Uh, we understand that there's a draft framework that's going to be, uh, we'll see very soon. So hopefully that will become clearer to us. But, you know, for our industry, we're constantly innovating and evolving as a regular course of business. We have been ever since salmon farming began. The operations in B.C. don't look anything like they did 10 years ago. So the idea of innovation and new technology and improving sustainability in our practice practices is not something that we're afraid of that's something that we that we do anyway so having a discussion with uh provincial and federal governments and our first nation partners on what first nations want in their territory that's a good thing speaking of ruth salmon interim executive director bc salmon farmers association i'm just taking a look at the statement that came out from the minister yesterday about this transition period that the government's looking at now and uh, she said that the industry will look at new technology while reducing or eliminating interactions with wild pacific salmon reducing or eliminating w- what does that mean to you are they talking about going to on land like on land farming or some sort of new technology for open net farming like what does that mean yeah, I think, uh, Mike, the, you know, the details will probably be more clear in that draft framework that we haven't seen yet. But certainly yeah. there's lots, there's lots of uh, different production technologies, different ideas for advancing the industry, which we'll take a look at. And also, more importantly, ask the First Nations in whose territories we're operating how they would like to see salmon farming in their region. I think that's, you know, first and, and foremost. Uh, wow. So, the, you know, the only thing that, that uh, we're disappointed about, we're happy about the renewal of the licenses, but significantly longer licenses are really needed not only to align with our production cycle, but to encourage further investments in innovation and technology. It's a bit ironic that the federal government is looking for innovations in aquaculture to take place, but in fact, short-term licenses don't give investors the kind of confidence to invest in Canada. So we can develop a plan, but we also really need that uh, certainty going forward. Right. You also, you've mentioned a few times about the involvement of First Nations here in this industry. How many First Nations are involved in aquaculture and salmon farming in British Columbia right now? Uh, we have about, I think there's 15 um, different agreements uh, with First Nations, uh, and that, that those First Nations have actually organized themselves um, into a new group called the uh, First Nations for Finfish Stewardship. It's a coalition of First Nations that uh, want to speak on behalf of sustainable seafood production in their territories, talk about self-determination, uh, rights and title, and, you know, that's, it's just great news to see that they're, they have a, a very strong, clear voice now. Right. What do you say to the criticism from 
environmental groups that have been campaigning for years to shut your industry down. We heard in that clip there from the Georgia Strait Alliance that they want fish farming basically open that fish farming base essentially phased out. And they outline a series of, of threats to wild salmon stocks. They say these farms can spread disease to to migrating wild salmon. What do you say to those those complaints and those criticisms? Yeah, that's a good question, Mike. The federal government has clearly stated and and others that protection of wild salmon is a priority. I mean, we operate in coastal communities in the marine environment. It's a priority for us too. But what's curious is the government's own science process has concluded that salmon farming and wild salmon can coexist. There's been multiple peer-reviewed science reviews uh, that keep reinforcing that salmon farming is not a driver affecting wild fish abundance. So, so that's, that's the debate that continues. But regardless yeah. of that discussion, we remain committed to working with all levels of government, including our First Nation partners, to secure a pathway forward that does not... Uh, harm wild salmon from salmon farming. Yeah, and when you take a look at, I mean, a lot of people are obviously concerned and alarmed by some of the collapsing wild salmon stocks and declines that we've seen in British Columbia. And a lot of fingers get pointed at fish farms is one of the reasons. But what other explanations are there for some of the troubles we're seeing for wild salmon? I mean, is it climate change? Is it is it overfishing? Correct. Yep, yeah, no, correct. You've got it. It's climate change. Uh, it is fishing. It's inland and coastal development. You know, there's so many other things that are hard to uh, to deal with. You know, like climate change is not a simple one. So, uh, oftentimes people point to salmon farming because they they think that we can they can do something about that. But in fact, it's and it's not. There's been multiple reviews. Uh, you know, the Cohen Commission, at the end of all of that, you know, came out with there's, there's no smoking gun. Salmon farming can coexist uh, with wild salmon. So it, I think it's just a frustration that we, we would like to do something. Uh, we don't know exactly how to tackle climate change. Uh, so we point to salmon farming. And it's okay. unfortunate. Final question for you. This is a, a period of uncertainty obviously for the industry how are you and the other people who work in the salmon farming business are you are you feeling threatened by the government right now or do you believe there's still a future for it where do you think this is all going yeah i mean of course we would like more certainty but i mean honestly we feel very very strongly that uh salmon farming uh has a place in british columbia you know we need to meet the demand for healthy climate friendly affordable seafood Rising food prices, food security, all those are critical issues right now for Canadians. This is the time to support a climate-friendly, sustainable food production system like salmon farming. So, yeah, we feel that the, uh, and, and the First Nations we work with are, are supportive and, and want to be more involved in monitoring and science. And so we see a real future for Indigenous and non-Indigenous coastal communities. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, Mike. Okay, Ruth Salmon there. Here we go again now with the continuing road and bridge blockades by environmental protesters. Metro Vancouver commuters continue to be trapped behind these blockades, typically go up at rush hour, and protesters were at it again yesterday, this time on the Lionsgate Bridge. 
blockade went up there around 7.30 a.m. yesterday. Imagine trying to get to work or to a doctor's appointment when this blockade on a key commuter bridge pops up. And a lot of people were delayed for a couple of hours there at that blockade. Police did move in, arrested some people here. Let's have a listen to Sergeant Steve Addison here from the Vancouver Police Department. We're not going to allow uh, people to uh, illegally blockade vital pieces of infrastructure, create public safety risks. Uh, And today we were able to intervene quickly, make a number of arrests, seize a number of vehicles and prevent um, a prolonged blockade. Okay, despite that, though, the organizers of these protests saying they are going to ramp up and continue more blockades of BC roads, bridges, and highways in the days ahead. Doesn't seem to matter when people are arrested, charged, have their vehicles seized. These blockades continue to happen. Even when some of their leaders of the protest movement are arrested multiple times. Zane Hack, he's been arrested 10 times at various protests and blockades. Over the last couple of years, he has now been detained by Canada Border Services Agency. He is an international student, originally from Pakistan. He is now studying at Simon Fraser University. He's 21 years old. He's been on this show in the past. And the spokespeople say that he was detained by Canada Border Services Agency, where he's expected to have a hearing as early as today. He has said that he is fearful that he will be deported uh, back to Pakistan. doesn't seem to matter, though. It doesn't seem to matter when people are arrested multiple times. Uh, they continue to block roads, bridges, highways, superglue themselves to the road, set up structures to block commuters. I spoke to the Liberal BC Liberal leader about it earlier today, Kevin Falcon, who says that British Columbians are fed up with this and He thinks there should be tougher penalties and sanctions against people who do this. And he had an idea that he told me about this morning. Have a listen to this. BC Liberal Leader Kevin Falcon earlier today. I'm going to bring in changes to the Motor Vehicle Act to make it an offense so that those people can immediately be sentenced to, for example, 50 hours of community cleanup where they can spend time picking up garbage in in the downtown east side and cleaning up graffiti in Chinatown, for example. Okay. Would that make any difference? If someone blocks a road or a bridge and you say, okay, now you have to do 50 hours of cleanup, pick up garbage by the side of the road, clean up the graffiti in Chinatown. I'm not sure it would make a difference or if people would even comply with the penalties. The people who are behind these protests saying they're not going to stop. It's going to continue. Of course, they're doing it in the name of climate change. A lot of the groups are opposed to old growth logging in British Columbia. What kind of impact do they have? Do they change anybody's mind? I've often said in the show in the past, I think it's counterproductive. Uh, you know, imagine someone who may be willing to support your cause, but they get trapped behind one of these blockades trying to get to a doctor's appointment or something. How is that going to help your cause? I think it possibly sets it back. Let's discuss now with my guest, Stuart Prest, political science professor at Simon Fraser University. Stuart, thanks a lot for coming on today. Appreciate it. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Okay. What do you think are the, the impacts of these type of protests? Do you think they make any difference at all? Do they make any, do they have any impact on the, on the politicians that the, the protesters are trying to pressure here? 
Well, they certainly can. It, uh, one way to think about it is uh, it's a, a high-risk protest strategy, and so it has a, the possibility of a, a reward as well. But protests are, are often, as much as anything, a battle for public opinion. First of all, to, to raise awareness about an issue and to make people aware of a, a topic that they may not have been uh, giving a lot of attention to, and then to try to, to convince the audience of uh, uh, what the, the right course of action is. And, and so this, this kind of activity will undoubtedly get people's attention, and so it will provide additional focus on the issue that wouldn't have been there before. But, but that second step is less assured. It doesn't necessarily follow that people will become more supportive of your uh, of your particular solution to, to the problem if uh, your your protests are, are uh, effectively alienating your dear target audience and so we see uh, some of uh, both of those dynamics at work here I think yeah and it seems to me that the protests are aimed at a couple of goals one is to put pressure on governments and politicians and government policy makers and there's also an effort to try and, I guess, win over the public, the hearts and minds of average citizens, like you mentioned. But so, so let's take those in order. Like when we talk about the potential to influence politicians, it just seems to me that these type of tactics could have the opposite of the intended outcome here. I mean, you just we just heard F- Kevin Falcon there, the liberal leader. He doesn't seem moved on this. He seems to be going in the opposite direction, saying he wants to bring the hammer down even harder on some of these protesters. Now, you've got a government in power, an NDP government, that conceivably might be more sympathetic to environmental issues, but I don't know. I don't detect any willingness on someone like John Horgan to cave into these type of tactics, but your thoughts? Well, I don't think a politician is likely to respond directly to the protest. And uh, we just have to look at uh, the experience of, say, the, the, the truckers' uh, uh, protest and occupation in downtown Ottawa to see that uh, the, the, the politicians in power, the Liberals, were, were unwilling to respond directly to, to the demands of, uh, of the, the organizers there. But, but we did at the same time see a, a new conversation around the place of mandates as a result of that uh, of that uh, action. And, and so I think the, the organizers here are hoping for that similar kind of dynamic. So even though the, the initial action itself is unpopular, it provokes this larger discussion that, that may try to, that may, may then galvanize support for additional action to, to yeah. stop old growth logging. So that's the hope. It's never to uh, pressure the, the politicians directly to, to act uh, to try to stop the protest, but rather to, to convince their fellow citizens that something ought to be done and then politicians who always have a finger uh, to the to the wind sensing that change in direction will uh, look to to do something different in order to to stay ahead of that public opinion so it really comes down to that that battle for hearts and minds if you like the battle for public opinion and and so that's yeah. why it's such a high risk strategy because you are trying to convince people that you are also uh, antagonizing with with these actions Speaking of Stuart Prest, uh, professor of political Simon at science at Simon Fraser University. Like speaking of those hearts and minds and the battles for the general opinion of the public, do you think that these type of protests have much of an impact in that regard? Because I've spoken to people, they've called the show here, who have said that you know I'm concerned about climate change. I think they should ban old all old growth logging in British Columbia. I support the cause here. But yesterday I got stuck behind one of these blockades. I was trying to get my kid to school. I was trying, just trying to go to work. And now I'm, I'm completely 
pissed off and angry about it. And now I'm, I'm more likely to, to not side with them because they've just personally angered me. So now you have potentially alienated someone who might have been leaning in your direction. But your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's uh, absolutely a risk here. And that the, uh, the sense is that uh, the, the uh, domain of, of protesting, the domain of people demanding action on, on old growth logging are, are really a, a radical component of society and, and uh, that they are actually um, separating themselves from, from mainstream opinion. And it is interesting because uh, polling suggests that there is a lot of concern about the, the state of, uh, of the, the old growth forest in BC. So there is a, a reservoir of goodwill there. And uh, I think the, what remains to be seen, I guess, is when these protests have, have uh, perhaps uh, gone on for a little while and then perhaps subside for a period of, of time, whether some of that anger uh, goes away and then people calm down a little bit and, and then start to, to pay more attention once again to, to the, the, the state of the, of the logging in the province. And yeah. so that's the hope of, of those organizers, is that when cooler heads prevail, people will remember that this is something they care about. And now it's on the forefront of people's minds once again, thanks to the protest. So that's the strategy. But because so many people are so adversely affected by it, and if there's any way you want to make a, a Vancouverite annoyed, it's to get them stuck in a traffic jam, the, yeah. the Highway 1 or somewhere else. That's, um, they're also going to remember that. So, so it, again, it's, it's a risk and reward strategy. And this is a, you, a fairly high risk strategy. Do you think that protesters for any number of causes in Canada are becoming more extreme or radical in their approach? Like we've seen these continuing protests and blockades for in the name of environmental causes. You mentioned the truckers blockade in Ottawa, the Freedom Convoy. I mean, just yesterday uh, we saw an arrest and someone broke a window at Vancouver City Hall when there was a a stop the sweeps rally at Vancouver City Hall as people who are opposed to police enforcement action in the downtown east side. And so, you know, that got a little violent and out of control at City Hall yesterday. Do you see a trend here or is that or is that kind of always been around on the on the fringes? I think it's always been around. I, uh, we just look at uh, some of the history of, of different uh, protest movements in Canada and elsewhere, whether you're looking at the civil rights movement in the U.S. or uh, campaigns to have Indigenous land rights recognized in, in Canada. We have long history uh, of, of protest to try to get the attention of policymakers or the broader public on issues that uh, the, the organizers feel are, are just not getting the attention they deserve. And environmental issues are, are prominent among them as well. And in uh, BC's history, Canada's history, but I think it's it's fair to say we're into a, a heightened cycle here, and where we have pol- politics is a, a more polarized than than we can remember it, and where. Uh, I think there is more of a sense that the other side is is, is not listening, regardless of which side you're on, and that uh, any kind of, of reasoned discussion is is more likely to fall on deaf ears. And so we see uh, actors on on both okay. sides of politics in the country, whatever their issues they're they're concerned about, they're. Uh, more likely to turn to these kinds of uh, protest actions because there's a sense that uh, the, the the conventional modes of politics and compromise just aren't working anymore. So, so I think we are uh, in in uh, line for for more of, of this kind of thing going forward. Stuart, thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime.
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about some of the headlines out of Ottawa with my guest, Tom Korski, executive editor, Blacklocks reporter in Ottawa. Pleased to welcome him back to the show. Tom, thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. Hey, Tom, I'm taking a look at the Blacklocks website and one headline, there's a bunch of headlines here jumping out at me. Let's talk about the tree planting uh, program here with Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. million on at least one phase of this program that what they didn't didn't they did not include planting trees what's going on here (laughs) they they did they spent 3.1 million in minister wilkinson's natural resources department and to date they planted zero trees and in fact they said in a tabling in the house of commons uh, we did not spend any money to plant trees directly later they'll spend billions to have other people plant trees how could you spend $3 $3 million on a tree planting program that was announced in 2019 and and not plant any trees. What This is a shovel, this is a tree. What would you do with $3 million? Oh, it went to public relations. They, uh, they, there was IT costs, management consultants, a lot of staff salaries. So, like, no trees. No trees, though. Okay, I'm taking a look at Jonathan Wilkinson's Twitter feed here, Tom, and yesterday, and I imagine this may have been in response to your reporting here so he he posts that we're plant planting two billion trees is a critical step forward in our fight against climate change in our first planting season we have achieved 97 percent of our planting target and we're on we're on track to plant two billion trees over the next 10 years they must have planted some trees here well they say they're going to plant 30 million this year Two billion trees over 10 years sounds impressive, doesn't it? Sure. But you know, what he doesn't mention is the logging companies will plant approximately 6 billion trees over that same period. It's a statutory requirement. I think BC invented it. If you cut a tree in this country, you must plant a tree. And that happens just as a matter of course. Uh, By the way, we have something like over 300 billion trees in Canada. They just did a census, the Canadian Forest Service. You know all about this in B.C. 900 million acres of trees. This is not Sudan. Trees, no problem. Hey, Tom, let's talk a little bit about a story we've covered here on the show in the past couple of weeks, and that was the in-flight catering bill for Governor General Mary Simon on that trip to the Middle East. So it's a bit of a bit of a bouncing ball here on the on the numbers here, but the latest number government appears to be coughing up here is just over $80,000 for in-flight catering on the Governor General's flight to the Middle East last March. What is happening with this? This is being reviewed now, right? This is really interesting, and it's rare. This hasn't happened in something like 15 years, uh, Mike. Commons Government Operations Committee, unanimous vote, that's all parties, including government caucus members, said this is unacceptable, outrageous figure. It came to something like $200 a plate for every breakfast, lunch, and supper they served on this trip. What would a $200 breakfast be? I can't imagine what that would be, Mike. MPs said, we want people down here. We want witnesses from the Rideau Hall, the Governor General's Secretary. We want witnesses from the Department of National Defense that handled that flight. How in God's name would you spend $80,000 on meals, especially at a time when, with inflation and cost of living? Unanimous vote, very rare. 
Yeah, that is interesting that all parties now want some answers here. And it appears that the governor general herself is concerned about this. She had put out a statement that saying, like other Canadians, she was concerned about the cost here of uh, catering on her flight. And the explanation is that, well, this wasn't her staff or Rideau Hall's decision. This was down to the, is it the Canadian Armed Forces that provide the plane and the, and the, the flight, the lift power here to, to, to fly the governor general around? So they spend them, they make the spending decisions on the food. Is that right? Well, this is the official theory. That's the spin, but, but to which the Quebec MP, a block Quebec MP, who uh, sponsored the motion that everyone loved, said, yeah, but no one said no. Someone had to say, what, what's the catering bill? Yeah. I'm sorry, the lobster and the camembert? And no one said no because they thought it was a neat idea. This has gone on for years. But there's such low tolerance in Parliament for this now because of what's happening with uh, working people and grocery costs. $200 a plate for breakfast. Can you imagine, yeah. Mike? What is going on here? This is ridiculous. And this oper- this House of Commons committee that will examine this now, how is this going to work now, Tom? They f- they call witnesses? What kind of investig- investigatory powers do they have here to get to the bottom of this? Oh, yeah, it's this? a naming and shaming exercise. It's an exercise in public humiliation. They actually want, originally wanted to get Mary Simon down herself, but said, oh, well, we probably can't subpoena her. House is going into summer recess now. By September 23rd, the minute they get back after... Labor Day, they want a hearing, they want witnesses, they want questions answered, and they want a solution. To give you an idea, the last time this committee tried this went way back after, you remember Adrian Clarkson's circumpolar tour? Oh, yeah. That cost oh, yes. $5 million. That cost $5 million, and all parties freaked out. This time it's 80000 That's what happens when the price of spaghetti goes up 20%. Everyone's fed up with, with this fake aristocracy and these kind of expense bills. Speaking of Tom Korski, executive editor, Blacklocks reporter in Ottawa. Tom, looking at the Blacklocks website right now, lead story. Dr. Teresa Tam, Canada's uh, health officer, wins a 22% pay raise. What is happening here? 324000 a year. She wow. got a handsome pay raise. Cabinet renewed a contract for another three years. There have been... I think, uh, and, and this has also been all party, there has yeah. been serious criticism in, in Parliament, committee hearings, uh, extensive disclosure of records we've seen through access to information, about what were frankly some, some serious missteps in pandemic management. I don't know anyone who thinks this was a really well-run pandemic response. Tam, from the beginning, low-balled infection rates said it's going to be 10%, no more. We got this under control. No one, you couldn't find an epidemiologist who believed that. She was slow on masks. As a matter of public record, in the early weeks of and months of the pandemic, said, oh, you know, just sneeze into your a Kleenex. A Kleenex will do, she said. They threw away masks. They, landed, they were short on supplies. That, that was never disclosed. And after all this, in this year of all years, with the inflation, the cost, we talked about the price of spaghetti. We talk about how people are getting angry and fed up, and they're letting their MPs know. A 22% raise to almost a third of a million a year for Dr. Tam. Okay, following that one closely as well. Tom, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Mike.